Welcome back to the Welcome Matt's podcast. This is Reverend Matt. And I'm Regular Matt. And we are very fortunate today to have uh, on the podcast with us, Eli. Um, so do we have do we have like a cheer button or something? Do you have anything? Hold on, I do. I do. <laughs> do I know which one it is? No. Uh... Roll the dice. There we go. Should we? So it. we can't hear it? Only you can hear it? Oh, damn. Can you not hear it? Uh, I can't hear it. All right. Well, I played it. It okay. happened. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. So, uh, Eli, if you could uh, just maybe give us a little bit of background on, on yourself, you know, like where you're from. And then um, I know, so a lot of our, our guests uh, have grown up going to a Buddhist temple, but I would be really interested in hearing um, your I guess relationship with religion or anything growing up and then mm. what eventually led you to um to buddhism and then you know really uh i guess developed your relationship with mm. it and uh, i mean you don't have to do it all in in one take i think our last <laughs> guest talked for maybe it was like 45 minutes straight we were just like wow oh wow so yeah <laughs> so whatever whatever you feel um you know is uh i don't know relevant or important or you just want to talk about it's it's all good so uh just a little bit about yourself please wonderful uh thanks for having me both of you i'm so happy to be here uh i think i or i'll start with my name's eli hello um i'm from santa Ana, california uh i grew up in the orange county area um and i actually started doing martial arts when i was really young and so when I was 12, I started doing Aikido at the Orange County Aikido Dojo. Um, and they're like affiliated just by being, you know, Japanese Americans in the area with the Orange County Buddhist Church. And so uh, since I was 12, I kind of loosely was in and out of the Orange County Buddhist Church. Um, but only ever, I really only focused on like going to Hanamatsuri to do the Aikido demonstration and eat snacks. So it was more like, snacks and play oriented and less buddhism oriented uh for quite a long time uh and then a lot of the buddhism came in the form of like zen training at the dojo uh and so i would meditate uh every weekend with uh the senses there and we would train zen and so um i kind of grew up with both zen and shin in buddhism in a really relaxed way in the background of my martial arts practice which was like I would like I was like a seven days a week kind of kid, so it was like a big part of my life for a while. Um, and then in college, uh, and when I was like college age, later teens and early twenties, um, I started kind of thinking about Buddhism more philosophically. I guess I, I like would read about it a lot and think about it in contexts that were weirdly felt separate from all the stuff I had learned about and I never could really like bridge the academic part and the feeling part. Um, and then when I moved to Chicago a few years ago for um, my first master's program, which was in writing actually, um, I started coming to the Chicago, the Midwest Buddhist temple out here uh, just because I asked my senses back there, who, who should, the, who will I know? And they're like, oh, I hear you will know these people. You're going to walk in and it's going to look the same as when you walk in at home. You'll get the vibe and, you know, you'll know some like, I call them like temple cousins or Aikido cousins where I'm just like, you're basically my uncle because your child somehow I grew up with and I didn't even know that I knew you. So there's a bunch of people like that. 
it was really nice and like welcoming. And then I started like actually coming to the services every week. I started helping out with a meditation program that I kind of uh, run now uh, in its virtual form. Um, and it, I like deepened like my actual like interest in like the Dharma, you know, um, by going every week, I think, and listening to the talks and just getting that like connection with people when I was trying to rebuild community felt really like powerful in a way that felt familiar and I wanted to explore why it felt so familiar to me and like what felt what I felt pulled to there and so what I felt pulled to was these like same teachings that I felt like I've been learning through the dojo and like lightly through all the different studies that I've done um and then that like kind of brought me into taking a more active role in leading meditation not just as a martial arts concept because uh, I would do that for Aikido since I was a kid I have been a black belt um, since I was about 17 and so I've been teaching since then and so doing that in like the temple context and helping out and having folks like teach me how to do that felt really fun and now I do that like as a job and then uh, going to school now to be a minister uh, which I just started last month has kind of been the new version of my interest and like how I'm trying to explore it but not quite 45 minutes but I feel like that's a quick uh, overview of kind of a decade of exploration. <laughs> no, that was great. Um, I mean, I feel like there's there's a lot there. Uh, like, um, yeah, there's a lot there. But <laughs> so I guess uh, so. Growing up, right, like you said, it was um, Buddhism was kind of in the background of martial arts, and I don't know. Maybe we could do like a whole podcast on on that. But I was wondering where. Um, the the intersect is there with like martial arts and um, Buddhism for you, like where you think yeah. that they really connect or maybe inform each other. Um, but mm. why why that's such an important connection uh, for you personally? Yeah, I think uh, for me, I had like a really unique kind of exposure and relationship to martial arts. Um, my parents and I had quite a journey of coming to understand each other, we had a few real, real rocky years. And so when I was about 12, uh, I kind of feel like I half lived at the dojo, half lived at home with how much I was there. And so I was kind of raised by like the seven uh, older Japanese men who ran the dojo. And so uh, I felt kind of like a stray dog. Like I kind of just wandered in one day and was just like, what's going on? And they're just like, what's up? There's a kid in the back. What are you doing here? And they just kind of like sat down and explained what was happening. And my parents said I could go. So I would just go every day. And so it's a really like family environment there. And it's run by uh, Brandon Ishisaka, who, whose grandfather kind of started the dojo in the 60s. Um, and so it's just been like a little cultural community hub for so long that I just kind of was accepted into just really welcomingly when I was 12. And so... We would study uh, Aikido so associated with like the philosophy of Zen just because that's how it came about. And so in order to like progress to the advanced ranks, I think I asked for like a more traditional training and I was really fortunate to get that. So sometimes I would get like really intense training on the mat, but also there would be a lot of like, okay, why are we doing this? Like, let's talk about the more like philosophical side of like, why do we do any of this at all? And so that meant using like 
what I now would think is like basic like Buddhist ethics to like break down, you know, when an opponent attacks you, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to hurt them back or are you trying to uh, control the situation and minimize pain? What does minimizing pain mean? Does it mean just yours or does it mean the both of yours? So like those little simple questions started like such a big uh, exploration for me on like thinking of safety and like almost like harm reduction, like as a way of living. And that's what I kind of feel like Buddhism is. It's a lot of just thinking of how to be uh, like kind and gentle. I, I think Reverend Brown uh, at the Midwest Buddhist Temple, sometimes I'll ask him to like say something as if he was saying it to a seven-year-old and he'll always tell me that like, that's also the answer for me, but okay, as if I was saying it to a seven-year-old. <laughs> and today I was like, what would you say? What's Buddhism to a seven-year-old? And he said, be kind and gentle to everybody. That was his answer. He said, everything starts from there. Anything you wanted to talk about could be boiled down to that. And I think uh, that and like sharing like those basic like kindergarten concepts, like they apply to everything. And so thinking about those in like a, in a space where like you think martial arts, a lot of people think like violence first. And so Aikido being like a defensive martial art, it's really focused on like finding where the person is at in front of you and being able to bring them to your calm without losing where you are, right? So you're bringing somebody into your circle while keeping your stability. And so I feel like the actual lessons of Buddhism often teach us how to stay calm in the midst of something that is unpleasant and be able to be that like stable thing that waits while things get figured out, you know? Or have that stable mindset to make choices instead of a frantic one. And so all those like little, we got to practice that on the mat all the time. So it felt like, okay, I learn about Buddhism when we talk about it, but I get to practice it on the mat when somebody's trying to punch me and I have to not be a jerk and kick them. <laughs> and I have to instead try to move out of the way and like do you know a controlled technique that's a lot harder than breaking somebody's elbow or doing something like that, which was something I learned in my Kung Fu, which I did before that, or something like that, which is still a different way of defense, but just... It, it connected with me so much deeper doing Aikido. And so I think it it was like inseparable for me. The learning about the two is always at the same time. Oh, that's so cool. I mean, that's coming from somebody who, like I had no martial arts training because my mom was super overprotective. So like nothing, just, mm. no, no martial arts, no football, no nothing. Like basketball was like pushing it. But uh, <laughs> I, so yeah, I think it's I, really cool. Oh no, go ahead. Mm. Oh, no, I was just going to say, my I was like a three sports a year. Everybody does martial arts family. So it was very intense. So Aikido oh. was like the lightest thing for me. Like, oh. Look at these like dancing people. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but you were saying. No, no, yeah, because you're, you're absolutely right that when, at least, you know, myself, you think of martial arts, it's just like yelling and, and punching in the, and like, you know, sparring and stuff. And so it's very you know cool to me to hear how you had these discussions and, and talked about the philosophy and everything. And I'm sure, you know, other martial arts do that as well, but you just, you never hear, or like see that side of it. So that's great to hear that you're able to like really understand, like you said, why, why it is you're doing anything, right? It's not just mm. to dominate or to cause the maximum amount of like pain or anything. You're, you're doing something yeah. for, for a purpose. And I think it makes the, you know, the, Re, like the depth of what you're doing so much deeper yeah <laughs> yeah no and i think that has a lot to do with 
like it being such a traditional dojo with like a close knit like specifically Japan Japanese American community. Um, like a lot of the older sensei all like there's a we all have the they all have like the connection of the being a generation or two like there's a lot of nisei a lot of sensei that are there like so their families were interned or they served in a war uh after that and had to deal with that whole experience and so they've had like so much uh real life uh, violence around them and then to have these like older men this is the place where they come to be gentle and explore that different side and like express that differently. And so I got like all of that, you know, real concentrated dose, which felt like as a kid who was like having a really hard time at home and out in the world, like I was like, oh, look at all these people who also had a hard time and like are also, I'm half black, so I was like, are also like dealing with kind of a similar sort of thing and have, we, we kind of have bridges that we can find each other on. Um, and they're figuring out how to not be angry about it and how to be, uh, like calm in their expression of care for them and the people around them. Nobody's losing when the other person wins. And so that felt like a really cool thing to explore, like, while well, like throwing kicks and punches. Yeah. <laughs> this is so much to do at once. <laughs> that's good. I, I mean, <laughs> and a lot of like, I mean, that's what they say with, um, a lot of youth, right, is that there's so much there that uh, they need, um, I guess, like structure is is a word that you hear a lot. But I mean, really, they just need something to do, right? And, and if, mm. you, if you have something to do, and it's meaningful, then um, you can get so much out of it, you know, as, as evidenced by you. Um, and it's really fantastic to hear how openly you were received in the community. Um, mm. I, you know, I, I don't want to speak badly about anyone, and I really don't know um, too much about the um, Orange County community, but mm -hmm. I do know that at some temples, they can be quite uh, apprehensive of allowing people who aren't necessarily Japanese American in. So um, I was uh, wondering if you could maybe speak to your experience, or if there was anything else to say about your experience in coming mm -hmm. into a community that was, um, you know, with the majority kind of homo homogeneous 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 that's it yeah. <laughs> it was kind of this homogeneous <laughs> community right, where they're all like the same and so if you ever felt um anything um i don't know negative or out of place or if it was completely the opposite and you know it was or just in there and like opportunities to learn but whatever like i, I just wanted to know your experience coming into an environment like that mm. yeah um yeah that's a great question i think that I am kind of a chameleon type of person sometimes in a way that less I shapeshift, but more like people seem to blend their idea of me into their idea of themselves a lot. I think I'm kind of an ambiguously looking person. And so you could kind of pop me in front of a group of relatively brown people and they'd be like, yeah, you go there. Like, And people tend to speak a lot of different languages to me just on the street and it's like oh okay oh i'm so sorry that's not one of the ones that i speak but uh so i think i had like i've had these experiences across my life where uh i get to really just like go and sit somewhere and folks tend to like just tell me about their day first and then we figure out why in their second i don't it's i don't something about my face it's the same as like i say i have a face of asking favors for 
because I also seem to be the person people are like, look in the group and are like, you, can you carry these chairs? <laughs> it's like, yes, I will carry those chairs. It's just something about, I don't know, I smile a lot maybe. But um, it was pretty welcoming. I didn't feel too different at first. I think, especially coming from the Black community, like not even just being different racially from folks who are Japanese American, but being somebody who's queer and trans, like those are things that I didn't know. Those are not things you really talk about in the Black community a lot. Like my parents, uh, my dad's side of the family, I remember when I come out in college or something, I just remember one person was like, oh, you don't gotta go saying all that. <laughs> that was the response. I was like, oh, interesting take. Okay, I get it. All right. So it's like a very weird, like, I don't, I'm not gonna tell you what I feel about that, but I just don't even think I should know. So it's a very much don't say anything about it sort of thing. If you're gonna make a wave, like at least make it a quiet one. And so, you know, being 12, I had just the like American stereotypes that I had uh, for like the Japanese community. And I was like, oh, this is another traditional, you know, very like strict sounding community. I wonder if that's gonna be a big issue. Um, and it really just never was. Like, I think I had a really special relationship with a few of the sensei, well, all of the sensei there, but a few in particular who really kind of stepped in as like second and third parents for me. And so anytime I felt like this, like when, if we're going to Hawaii and we're doing a demonstration, it's really like all Japanese folks and me, like, it always felt like I belonged to the family first. And so it didn't matter if I didn't quite look like I fit all the time. And so with that feeling, uh, a lot of the like potential hiccups or like weird things that happen anyway, you know, like people are gonna be racist at some points, no matter what on accident or on purpose. So it's not like I never experienced it in the Aikido community or in like a Japanese American context or in a temple community, but it didn't feel like specific or targeted because of that. And I felt so at home in my like connection to belonging there that like it, it didn't quite face me so much. Like it felt like the least of my worries in that sense. Like if I wanted to think about the ways that racism was affecting me, like going to like a majority white school was much more frustrating than going to the dojo ever and like that I was just like, this is any sort of little microaggressions here, like we get to actually talk about, therefore it's fine. You know, we, we can speak our feelings here, which felt uh, like progressive and uh, really uh, forward for the community itself and just like our times that we're in in general. That was still like the, you know, late 2010s and early 2000s. So there's, we're, that was not quite 2021. A lot has changed in the past 15 years. And so they've learned very quickly alongside me. And we've all like grown together. Yeah, no, that's wonderful to hear. I think yeah, Matt and I were, what were we, I forget which it was, which one it was, but we were talking about like just the, the difference in times, like you said, from the, two, mm -hmm. like the 2000s from now is like night and day, which, you know, even like 2000s from whatever, the 90s is probably a lot too, but mm -hmm. it seems like it's getting even faster and faster the way uh, we've been able to um, come to understand and like learn and accepting now um, what could be, you know, potentially um, 
seen as you know violence um, and mm. against someone uh, in terms of what you say or how you act um, depending on uh, you know like that that relationship so um, it's it's wonderful to hear how, how you're able to grow and then also how you were able to find such an amazing um, community there so um, and like that that feeling of home I I really appreciate like I love uh, I love that about the temple and you know I mm. I uh see my own my own experience like it was like a second family for me too probably not um as amazing as yours was i'm you know kind of i don't know jealous is the right word it was like oh man that sounds like it came with, it came with its ups and downs <laughs> yeah. i will say okay we're getting a, a beautiful glassy yeah. picture, but you know it was yeah. still growing up <laughs> right yeah so I mean, like, cause yeah, that it's it's true how everyone there is like, you know, your your auntie or like your uncle, and and they're looking out for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you you said you were uh, you had people that you knew in Chicago, and so mm-hmm. uh, I don't know how many people um, that that listen to us anyway. Probably the majority of them are on the West Coast, uh, but if mm-hmm. they know very much about the Midwest Temple, so uh, if you could maybe speak to a little bit about the makeup of that temple, if it's the same, you know, as, as your experience mm. in Orange County, if it was like all Japanese American, or if it was a little more, um, you know, diverse or something, um, just mm. uh, maybe a, like a quick picture of, of what that Sangha looks like. Yeah, um, this Sangha is pretty diverse now. I think it's now getting a little bit more and more diverse with like the younger folks, but it does have like a very strong, like we say population and uh, very like family uh, oriented like sangha still. There's still a lot of like great grandparents, grandparents, uh, parents, and grandchildren who all come. You know, so it's a pretty deep Japanese community here, especially being in Chicago, which is a very like segregated type of place. Um, so the communities tend to run deep uh, where they are, um, and it feels like like when I walked in, like the, the feeling of it was exactly the same as the dojo in Orange County or the temple in Orange County in that like it just like I just knew what to do right away like I walked in and there was a guy like pulling out the tables and then there was like somebody wobbling with like a couple teapots and I was like ah I immediately know what's happening let me go get the chairs and then somebody will talk to me and then somebody did and then like immediately we just like oh this is the hondo here this is that so uh, yeah, it's a really cool community. Uh, after the uh, Second World War, after the internment camps, uh, after some folks were released and not able to go back to the West Coast, they were legally located to Chicago. And so that is this community's kind of ancestry. And so um, we're a couple generations from that now. And there is a good diversity now of young folks. I think especially now that we're online for like a whole year, um, I run the uh, meditation, the Zenshin program. And so when we used to sit in person, we would have like anywhere from 25 to 30 people sometimes when it's like a big, which is a pretty good group for like early morning Sunday meditations before Sunday sand, uh, family service. And it would be like people who have been there for like five years, six years, like people who have just been coming for a long, long time. And so it was a little bit older, a little bit uh, still diverse, but just kind of an older 30 to 60 crowd. And so now we have actual like uh, 
folks coming in from all over. We have some folks who sit like from Europe. <laughs> There's a woman from Portugal now and like folks just have floated into this little community and we have this kind of like little bubble within the bigger context. So it's kind of like a dual Sangha now that we have our online version. Um, but it's really cool to see it grow online and to like shift things meditation wise and see people like now we used to just do like our sit and then there's a little zenshin talk or dhamma talk and then you go downstairs for the social hall you can chat until regular service but now we do like a full check-in like everybody goes and i call on everybody and they just tell me about their week or they respond to what i said for the week and so we've like deepened our connection we all know so much more about each other than we ever would have and we've all talked to each other so much more than we ever would have like so much more in depth so it's been cool to see the sangha kind of get closer in different ways but yeah it's a uh, pretty diverse in the young people but still pretty traditional and holding on to like a lot of its like family uh lineages in some of the old crafts so it's nice yeah it's, it's kind of the best of uh, both worlds there where like you have right that. yeah <laughs> it's like a balance how how do you both feel about uh your songs how are they more diverse uh, are they getting more diverse i don't know i think ours is a little bit different i would say from when i was going to temple um hmm. it's a little bit more diverse i think one thing is that we just have such a large like ja population as well that mm. it's kind of it's kind of that thing that you were just talking about of well i know so-and-so's great-grandparents and grandparents and parents so it seems like in in the more maybe more the last five ten years it's been getting a little bit more diverse we have families that i would say mm -hmm. i don't know and not in a bad way mm -hmm. just just like oh I, I don't know who those people are but you know I, I see them come to temple a lot more um but I, I i would say we're still like predominantly like japanese american mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely has been something that uh, people are um, trying to bridge there, like to get out in the community and, and, and make it seem more appealing, I guess, for, for people, for like out you know outsiders from the temple, uh, which mm -hmm. has been difficult uh, because of the history, you know, as you know, with all like the racism and everything, they've kind of, mm -hmm. they've insulated themselves. And so we get people who walk in and they're like, I didn't even know there was a temple here. I, I, I like lived down the street and I never knew because they, they just didn't want to publicize a lot, um, kind of as a you know, self-preservation uh, method. So we're, we're past that point now. Or we're trying to get out there. We're trying to let people know we're here. And then I think the next step is making it a little more um, welcoming, which mm -hmm. uh, is not to say that we're not trying. Um, we definitely have greeters and people who are, are welcoming and trying to, you know, sit with people to help them uh, not feel so intimidated because it's like hugely intimidating. I think, mm -hmm. at least, you know, from my experience of going into uh, some kind of religious place where everyone looks the same and they do the same thing and they all know what they're supposed to do. So that's like fantastic that you knew exactly what you were supposed to do. Um, mm -hmm. I remember in, in college, um, as like a religious studies major, one of the classes I took had a requirement that we had to go to a religious service of a faith that wasn't our own. And so mm -hmm. I went to, um, it was a Christian one. I want to say it was Catholic because it was like 
Filipino because I'm half Filipino. So I was like, okay, if I go, then I'll feel like a little more comfortable. That was not the case. I like, (laughs) I had had no idea what I was doing. It's like looking, like kind of looking over and we're going down now and now we're up and read the, find the page and no one needed the book. They were all just saying it from heart. And I was like, oh, I don't know what we're supposed to say. So like, that's, that's how I imagine, you know, when someone comes into our temple, maybe how hard it can be if you've never had that kind of experience. So, I mean, it's, it's great yeah. that you were able to have something that you could like call back on to, to make it easier. Yeah, I will say um, I went to two years of Catholic school and I was not raised with any Buddhism as my first religion. So I wasn't really of anything before that. And it was my first and second year of high school. And it felt like that. I walked in and we would have to do like mandatory mass month to month. And I was just like, there's this secret rule book that everybody knows. There's this secret lore that everybody's a part of. Like, there are all these things that people just start saying in response. It's to like they're doing it to point you out so that they know that you're yeah. not <laughs> one of them. They're like, like, oh no. <laughs> what's happening here? There's so many rules I don't know. So it did feel like moving across the country. I think that's why it was so much double like home that I like could go somewhere where I knew the rules and they felt natural and not like I had to like guess at the book <laughs> and be like, what page are we on? Right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, they turn to you and they say, oh, yeah, peace to you. And it's like, uh, th- thanks. No, that wasn't the right <laughs> yeah. answer. Oh, all right. Sorry. And also with you, my bad. Yeah. Yeah. I do, do I or do I not eat the bread? I don't know. Like, yeah. There's a lot. When I was younger, I would go like to church every now and then with like a grandma or uh, like one of my friends. If I like spent the night on a Saturday and they were like a family who went to church, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm going to church today. And it would always just be like, okay, let's figure out how to not break the rules i'm so sorry everybody <laughs> i don't know what you're doing <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, oh well that's i mean that's yeah it's it's funny now to like laugh at it <laughs> when you're like directly there standing in line it's, i don't even know i'm supposed to be in line but i think it's an interesting thing to think about though as like uh, like somebody who leads meditations i'm sure as like a minister and just as somebody who's really involved in temple mat like as folks who are welcoming people in in different ways uh very literally with your podcast um like for me when i this past year uh after the pandemic when i started sitting with folks virtually i switched to doing that full-time as my job and so uh i used to be a preschool teacher as well and so i i had the choice to like re design how I lead meditation. Okay, this is the first time it's not secular or not religious or like uh, martial arts, like this is a separate thing. And what does that mean to offer it to folks who might not be like my training partner of 10 years in Aikido who has the same language as me, or like folks who grew up in the temple who at least have basically the same language as me, you know? I could refer to different like Buddhist concepts and those are familiar, not like things you would have to think too hard about. And so I kind of like took a step back and thought of it from a more like abolitionist lens. It was just as protests were starting and over here in Chicago with like George Floyd and everything like that. And so I remember thinking about meditation and like taking a whole like couple weeks to really think like, what would I do if I didn't know what to do, right? Because there's often that's when we like, make the most creative choices is when we don't know our options because we're unlimited in that way, you know, even if it's overwhelming. And so I like broke down the structure of meditation just a little bit more accessibly, I think, 
And so folks now, like, instead of, like, yes, I could teach an online Zen class every single day. That's 40 minutes of silent meditation and then a real short story. And that's it. Go think about it later. And then maybe a discussion class that's separate from that. Like, that's how I was raised very traditionally. But in, like, giving folks a smaller amount of silent meditation and then just like a breathing exercise and like a body scan, like something to just like get them in their body, experience a little bit of calm and then have one like practical thing before I talk and then we discuss and then like actually discussing like a check-in style. Like this is my presentation. I gave a little Dharma talk and then like, what did you think or what's on your mind? And let's talk about that after. So now that we have like a little structure, if we need to refer to something or if somebody's feeling overwhelmed, They've got metaphors already to pick from, but then they really get to use their words if they want to, to fill in the gaps there. And so it felt like that was the way I wanted to make my you know, community of me accessible to other people and figure out how to be, how just have a Zoom feel like a Sangha to everybody, no matter if this, it's just this three of us one-on-one -on -one or like a group of 10 and have that be like, from the get-go, hmm, I don't want to say this, very respectfully, I love the way I was raised and trained, but a lot of my sensei, I think, think a good student is one who stays. A good student is one who tries to figure it out, which are things that could make somebody a good student. But I think for me, a good student is any student, is somebody who wants to learn, right? And a good teacher is somebody who remembers how much they are also a student and figures out the way to explain the way, like explain something that makes sense to somebody specifically, right? There's so many forms of Buddhism because there's so many different stories the Buddha told to different people. And then people ran with those different types of stories and built whole, you know, thought schools out of them because people think differently. So you need different things to help you see the same point, right? We're all saying the same thing just in a thousand different ways because it makes sense to us differently. So I think like safety feels different and figuring out ways to make people feel welcome and safe has been really fun and like restructuring and just like figuring out, okay, now that like I have the space to be a community of one and invite people in. And now that y'all like have healed beyond like more of the pain and you're willing to like be brave and try to get people to come in, like what happens when you play with that like creative bubble of unlimited that's fantastic. I'm probably going to steal that from you. Um, <laughs> Go for it. I stole it from somebody else, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, it's, it, is, it is a little bit trickier um, when, like, you know, as, as a minister to a larger sangha, like, I can't sit down 300 people and ask them how their day is. Um, that would just take, like, a week. But <laughs> it's, you know, if, if I could do that in some kind of um, smaller scale. But I, you're, you're absolutely right that there is this, like, language barrier right that if you um, even if you're i think you know to maybe make it clear for people if they don't understand it's not that people don't speak english but we mm. were raised with these certain terms or, or concepts that if you have a similar upbringing it's very easy to access versus if you don't then it's hard and so i know uh, as a minister i have to be very careful that uh while our heritage is Japanese, Japanese American, and um, I love you know all those uh, parts of the culture. I have to be very careful talking about something because there's people 
that could be in um, the congregation that day that potentially wouldn't know what I'm talking about, right? If I start talking about, oh yeah, you know, with like the shoyu and you pick stuff with the hashi and everything and people are like, what is he talking about? And I have to like use, mm. you know, certain words uh, and be careful that um, everything is accessible. And I'm not excluding um, anyone from potentially understanding. And I mean, you know, everyone's going to misunderstand. That just happens. But like if whatever yeah. I can do to, to do the best to make it uh, easily accessible for people. And then uh, like you were talking about um, the also the, relationship of the teacher and student and how like there's that really traditional understanding and um i struggle all the time with you know those kind of being super traditional and you know uh really true to the tradition and all the the rules and everything and then you know breaking everything and it's like oh we're we're starting something new we got to do something for a new place and a new time and a new generation like all these things but mm -hmm. i because one of the things i love about uh, Japan is that it's existed for so long and there's so much there that they can pull from. And so mm. like, it, it kind of, do you have to be within those rules if you want to gain something from that? But at the same time, uh, it is limiting, like you said, whereas, you know, in America, we don't, we don't have like our own mythology or anything because our country is too young essentially to really have mm. something that far back uh but at the same time it's very freeing because then we can make it our own we can do whatever uh we want with it so like I, I feel like you're also playing with that tension of trying to be true to what you learned but also making it um your own and making it something that would speak to the the people that um would need it right that you're trying to to reach so I don't know. I, I think in my own way, I, I understand uh, what, what you've been doing and, it, and it's great to hear that you have something that clearly is working. Otherwise, you know, it mm. wouldn't be growing. You wouldn't be able to um, get more people and they wouldn't be coming back. Right. So I think it's mm. fantastic that uh, you're able to now with, you know, the pandemic and everything can reach even more people from however far mm. across the world that, that they are. Um, yeah. yeah. I think especially something that you said, like, us being like a young country and like a lot of folks being displaced from other places and ending up here and like trying to pull at their roots and figure out how they fit into this new context. So much of like my experience has been somebody who kind of exists in between a lot of spaces, mixed kind of everything. And so I've always, as a kid, it felt really hard to belong anywhere, feel like I was somewhere that I completely should be. And so I felt like I struggled a lot with trying to get that sense of like rootedness and in like thinking of all of these things that I ended up gravitating towards that are really old traditions, like really traditional martial arts or meditation practices or like reading forever. <laughs> I used to read so much as a kid, like six books a week. And so like, doing all these things and looking back so much, I think taught me that like my understanding now that's still growing and shifting, but of like how to uphold tradition and like understand culture while understanding where we are now, like where it comes from and how it's evolving is the same as like, when I think about just one little cause and effect, like when we say like, uh, right. Or, you know, if you say grace, there's a, there's a more accessible if you're not Buddhist listening to this um, <laughs> or any sort of blessing before me. Um, 
we're like acknowledging all the things that went into that food, right? To get there, to show up. And so in trying to do something for your sangha, you're acknowledging all the like sanghas that came into making this one possible. And so even if you're not doing the same thing, there's ways to try and like reach back and honor that like lineage and transmission. And so I think if you keep that spirit, then it feels a lot freer to kind of make some wiggle room because I feel like I'm respecting that they were honoring there right now and I'm honoring mine right now. And mine is a direct like descendant of that, but it's also a very different moment. And so it requires different things. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. I mean like that's yeah. it really I think mirrors uh you know what you're talking about mirrors um Buddhism's evolution in the mm. sense that right it is very very old tradition but it resembles nothing like what it what it was uh when the Buddha was walking around and like you, you something you said where you you keep that spirit and that's where we're constantly trying to come back to that that spirit of what the Buddha taught and so that you see Mahayana right and they're like well no that's not what you're doing you're, you're supposed to be caring about everybody and that's like the spirit mm. and then um in you know medieval Japan uh, the Kamakura area which is where Zen and Shin come from we're like yeah you guys don't get it you know high up on your mountain you got to come down and and you know be with the people and so like they're constantly trying to find the spirit and so again right like now in America in uh 2021 we're trying to find again the spirit of buddhism in the best way that we can uh bring it to the people and understand it and it's like you know not not that we're getting rid of everything beforehand but we're trying to again like find what it is that essence that that the buddha mm. taught that we can find for ourselves and, and share with you know our fellow travelers so i don't know that was just yeah. a great great way to, to explain it i'll probably steal that too uh <laughs> It's all stolen words, yeah. you know? <laughs> We're just passing around the same ideas until they make sense to us. <laughs> very true, very true. Uh, I, I feel like I would be doing a disservice to our time with you if I did not uh, bring up, like you were talking about how you never really felt um, you belonged to one place, you're kind of in between uh, a lot of times mm. growing up. Um, and mm. let's see, Matt, Matt put this thing in here. Um, defining non-binary and qt poc is that do you is there a way to say old? that how old are you I I never, what's wrong with you <laughs> have you never heard of that? i don't look i right, look i've seen i've seen the i've seen the the lgbtq i've seen the bipoc uh, and then you've got this thing with the cutie in front of it and i mean it's a, a cutie but i don't know if that's what it's returning to <laughs> is that of course for one but also no <laughs> um, so that's it's like just a combo queer and trans and then BIPOC black and indigenous people of color um, so it's just like the quickest way to get those all one little succinct thing um, but that's yeah that's how I identify um, as a like a queer person I'm a trans person uh, and then I'm a person of color I'm black um, and non-binary fits into like how I view myself as trans. So I view myself as like a non-binary trans person, or that's, how, that's who I am. Um, just meaning that I don't identify within like a strict male and female binary mode of viewing gender. I think that um, there's like a real, like, you know, European Western way that we see gender these days, but a lot of Indigenous cultures didn't view gender that way. A lot of different cultures still don't view gender that way. Um, and a lot of 
science does not view gender that way. So for me, it's more of just like an expression and a different type of exploration. And so being non-binary is something that kind of like feels like a more fluid pace, place to rest for me. Um, being that I don't think that the kind of set structures that I've been given are quite expansive enough to express it. And so I picked a bigger container, I think. And that's what I've been working in these days. Um, and it feels nice. It feels really freeing. I think uh, I came out, I grew up identifying uh, kind of like uh, a lesbian, I guess, for most of my teen years, because I felt like the closest thing. I was like, I don't know, I guess I'll try this. But it always just, I was like, this is something's not right here. And I think I didn't know how to separate gender from sexuality. So like nothing really made sense and nobody else knew around me. So they're just like, I don't know. You figure it out, I guess. We think it's all done. So I was just like, well, okay, fine. I'll figure it out. But I think eventually um, I came to just an understanding of like a more open way of being and expressing my gender and that being not dependent on who I love. Uh, that's kind of a different conversation, but just of like how I uh, show up for the ways I want to present and the ways I want to relate to myself and like my ideas of femininity and masculinity don't quite have anything to do with maleness or femaleness. So having like those things divorced from having to be one way makes me feel like I can be any way at any given moment and that's still honoring the same me. So it just feels like a fun and playful way to approach unlimiting who I think I am and like who I think is the same as me or not. Yeah, thank you. No, that was beautiful. I, I feel like, uh, I mean, I have a better understanding now, you know, especially when you were talking about like, you just, you get it, you just get a bigger container. Like I was like, that's. Mm -hmm why would anyone want to live in like a world with like restrictive labels and stuff mm -hmm. and feeling like you have to be a certain way and you know people get into severe you know depression and stuff from uh mm -hmm. trying to fit into like a box that they they don't belong in right they it's it's something mm -hmm. bigger than than these little tiny boxes that we try to put everybody in so i i, I really appreciate um, your your explanation and and saying it you know through your your own experiences uh i mm. i as a um you know buddhist podcast i i wonder how um so i wonder if you could tell us how buddhism uh maybe mm. informed your uh uh that kind of um I guess, relationship with yourself, uh, mm. growing up or, or, you know, getting as older, more mature now, like, uh, yeah. what kind of role maybe it played in, in your identity? Yeah, I think, um, it all started with that sort of bigger container mentality. Like I think learning about Buddhism has been shedding the boundaries between things for me while respecting things as individual things, right? Like form is emptiness, emptiness is form. A lot of the Heart Sutra has driven a lot of my uh, like study. That's the first chant I ever did and it became my favorite. I chant it every day. It's kind of like in the background in my head all the time. It's tattooed on my back. It's a, it's a good one for me. <laughs> but um, that like idea that I can be something and that matters and it also doesn't matter at all, right? Like you can explore what boy means to you without feeling like it has to exist in a strict 
permanent way, right? There's one right way to do it because there's never one right way to do anything in Buddhism, right? It's all just based on how you're thinking about the situation and gaining more context, right? Basically, like the the hardest ethics classes we ever have, or discussions we have in my like ethics classes are never like about anything too crazy. It's like there's a couple who's arguing. What's the simplest way for them to get back together? <laughs> like it's always the like what's basic kind. Of, how do you boil it down? Sharing. That's like a thirty minute discussion that ends up just with sharing as an answer, right? And so thinking of all these ways that something really big becomes something small and simple and yet so expansive. I feel like that's what Buddhism does with all the principles, you know? It takes something that feels overwhelming and makes it really simple. And then in finding safety in that simplicity and that accessible attachment, you re-unlimit yourself by being like, okay, I just learned this thing and now it doesn't even have to stay looking like that. So I'm gonna learn something else that's gonna teach me more about it. So I don't need to hold on to this thing I know with a capital K. I can just know things as I know them, right? And let go of them and learn more. And so I started viewing gender like that. I don't have to be one way. I don't have to like come out and then stay that way. Because that was also like a box I fell into. I was like, okay, now I have to be a boy with a capital B. And I wear button downs now. And that's me. And I was just like, okay, yeah, button downs are cool. But also so is every other item of clothing. Like it's okay. It doesn't have to all be so pressured. And so in Buddhism, always teaching me to ask like, why? And to return to what's actually happening right now, it reminds me of like, if I'm doing something, if I'm getting dressed, like, why am I dressing this way? And how does it make me feel? Like just on the very basic level, right? And that doesn't even have to be a gender exploration. That could just be a way to be like, hey, I'm a person. I have to remember that. And I have to honor that by like doing the person things and thinking about my feelings and giving them space to breathe. And I think I've, you know, coming from like a Zen background, a traditional background, my family's very like uh, strict as well and traditional in different ways. Um, I've like, my brother's fake family motto for us is suppress and assess. <laughs> Everything gets, <laughs> gets put down and then just calmly assessed for efficiency and productivity. And so while there's a lot of love, of course, like that's kind of, the more the instinct is the bottling and so buddhism feels like an unbottled so first i find a bigger container right I identify as a non-binary person and that feels really good and but like when it's just me and like i'm sitting in a room of like other trans and queer people like i'm not thinking like ah i'm a non-binary person with non-binary people even though that recognition feels really like good and like homey it feels like ah we're just here right like we're just here in this moment, honoring ourselves as best we can. And so in like figuring out what I want, that means I have to really like get to the bottom of like what desire means to me, like what that means to other people. So I just like every chance to learn about myself is a chance to learn about everybody else. And I think that's what Buddhism also teaches me. And so in deepening my connection with gender and pushing myself to always expand it, I'm always expanding like everybody else's potential for myself, I guess, if that makes sense, you know, to like humble myself too in that way. Um, it feels like really spacious. Man, if you become a minister, you'd be a fantastic minister. I might have to stop. Oh. Oh. Right <laughs> now. Thank you. 
<laughs> that's so kind thank you because <laughs> i mean that was i don't know i yeah that was as good as the Dharma talk as I've ever heard, but like mm. this this idea of you know Buddhism being, uh, like you said, bring it breaking it down and then kind of unleashing it is really mm. what you know in in Shin, like the Nembutsu, where it's this one thing and it's mm. simple, but everything is like contained in it. And once you understand that, then you can let go of it, and it doesn't mm. it doesn't even matter. Not that you you know they tell us like oh you should be saying it all the time, you should say it for everything, but like which is fine. But then it it you you break out of the container and it's not saying anything anymore. You're living it. And that's yeah. what's like freeing of it is you're not restricted to this one practice. You have to go out and actually like do it. And then, mm. um, you know, like you, you said with the, you know, trying to figure out uh, the existing with like other people. Um, mm. I don't know. I feel like I would, I would do it injustice by trying to repeat it so if you're listening to the podcast just rewind it, listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> no yeah no i get that um i think it's just it's so nice to figure out like how to relate in those ways and to think about like even in martial arts you go through all the ranks and then you become a shodan in aikido right a first degree you start over it's the beginner rank and so you're like some people are like, oh, you're a black belt. Now you've mastered the art. And it's just like, no, that's now you've done something so many times that you can play. With it. That's all that it is. It's like, uh, I don't have to tell myself to uh, make my bed in the morning, right? I like routines. That's one of them that I like. I don't have to tell myself to make my bed just because I've done it so many times that it's in my body. Now it's an embodied experience. And so when I'm doing it, I can pay attention to doing it. That's like my one like meditation cleaning. so i like just have a nice time being a nerd and making my bed and i have my like good time by myself but it feels like at first i was like making my bed sucks i'd rather just leave like that's what i'm thinking about right and then i i live this whole little life of like learning to be frustrated with what i'm doing learning to let go of that frustration learning to do what i'm doing and explore what else it could make me feel and then embodying that other feeling by like turning making my bed into something that makes me feel good and so Buddhism teaches us to do that with everything. And that feels like so, it's just so fun and free. I think like you could talk about just any small thing for so long and that makes me so excited about, about like human connection in general. Like we could do this podcast for like eight hours and talk about three things. Or we could do it for one hour and talk about like 20 things. Like you can just do whatever you want. It's true. It's, it's what makes the job uh hard because then you could talk about anything and you have this like, analysis <laughs> yeah. paralysis but then also easy because you could talk about anything so it's it's fantastic uh and there was another thing you mentioned about um your family and how they have this kind of you know su suppressive like nature when it comes up mm -hmm. with things and i feel like uh, probably a lot of uh japanese american families are the same going back uh to you know those great that isei and nisei generations where you just you put your head down you just keep going and so like the um, not to take anything away from them, but like the Sansei generation didn't have as much like suffering, but they still learned that uh, mentality of like just locking things away and not mm. ever addressing them. And so I feel like with the Yonsei generation, they're kind of rebelling against it just to rebel, uh, but also because they understand that maybe it's not so healthy. But uh, there's still these these remnants, I feel like, of maybe trying to, to push things down. And so I was wondering uh, what you felt 
perhaps um, the not you know not even necessarily the JA community, but like the the Temple community, what they could be doing. Um, I don't know. I mean, like maybe to help themselves, but I guess also to be better uh, allies, to be mm. um, people who can be more um, open or or whatever whatever they can do for the um, what was it QT BIPOC community. Mm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things I could say, like practically, there's a lot of different things to read. There's a lot of ways to like involve yourself in like learning about other communities that are different from you that I think we all basically know the, the basics of. We can all look at that list. But when it comes down to it for me, uh, one thing a real dear friend of mine says, uh, who's like a harm reductionist and a social worker and a therapist, um, they, are, they say that one principle they live by that sounds like depressing at first, but is really freeing is that everybody can harm. Right? They believe in that principle. Everybody can harm. And so in knowing that, we know that we all have the capacity to misunderstand and hurt each other in different ways and not show up for each other. And that capacity that's there in all of us is there no matter who we are, right? No matter if we're good or bad. So harming is detached from being a good or bad person and more a result of your actions, right? And so in divorcing ourselves from the ego of always trying to be good people, not bad people, do good people things, not bad people things, it's a trap because we don't always know what's good, right? Because that's just the information people are telling us. So if you think it's good to not let black people sit at the counter, you know, in the 60s, then you do actions that follow with being a good person and you never really examine the intent of it. And so I think in having more open and honest conversations about like removing shame from harm, removing shame from accountability, learning how to hurt somebody's feelings and then show up for them in a way that's real and healing, not just like uh, band-aids being passed back and forth. I think it starts with having those like more expansive conversations where we just like talk about, okay, like, what does safety look like to you? Why? Right? Because that, even just that question means I have to think about all the ways I was raised and felt unsafe, right? And then we talk about those and we learn those differences, right? You might not have felt unsafe in the ways that I have felt. You might not have, you know, walked down a street as a 12-year-old young Black girl and been catcalled by older men. It's a different type of safety that you've never had called into question, maybe. Or maybe you have. And we get to talk about that and build that bridge there and then explain why that felt the same as something else, right? That's just an example. But there's different things that we grow up with not experiencing that color the way we shape, that we move it, right? And so rather than giving such prescriptive answers to so many things, such like do these 10 things and that means you have done the work, do these 10 things and this means you've done like your good ally point for the day, I think it's recentering like honest conversations about like how do you express and receive love and care and why do you feel that way? And then when we explore the whys, we get to like those cultural differences and get to see people as like expansive, full, you know, moving, evolving beings. And that brings in their whole context. And so we get to honor their history, their culture. We get to bridge those gaps and learn about them while respecting what's what's theirs truly and what's ours 
and then what the outlaw is. So I think less than, you know, read how to be anti-racist, that's a great book to read. Uh, we can all do those things and look up the Instagram links. I think thinking about how we're honest with ourselves first. Like what if, what did I kind of not check in with myself about today? What was I a little bit complicit about or lied to myself a little bit about? Or what did I look at and turn the other way about in myself? Why did I do that, right? If I get frustrated with my roommate over the dishes, well, instead of like just being a jerk right away, sometimes I just think, why am I mad? Do I think he owes me his time? Why do I think he owes me his time and effort? Because we've been raised, and this is like a real, I'm going to go quick. So it's a real big jump, but like, because you were raised in like this like production culture where we're so based on like, okay, I spent this amount of time. You should spend this amount of time back. I felt like I vacuumed, so you should do the dishes, right? And I'm thinking of our, our interaction as a trade rather than like of us both really being here and taking care of each other's needs, right? That's a different thing. So recentering, like just pausing in the moment of any conflict and letting it be what it is without judgment and just looking at it. Be like, why did we hurt each other? Let's not judge each other for why. Let's really understand and then try to heal, really listen, not just talk about things that could have been better, but really like embody that kind of better understanding. And then through that, I think the actions have to follow. Because if you know better, it's easier to do better, right? So I think it starts there. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was, that. yeah, fantastic answer. I don't know. I'm probably going to listen to it over and over again. Uh, <laughs> mm. <laughs> just use this like, as a you, Dharma you, talk, just yeah. in general. I'll this just, just, just be his Dharma talk. <laughs> Uh, but you, and you're, you, I, there's a you know an aspect within um, Shinran's teachings of of like human calculation that I think you really hit on and um, how we all have like you said you look up the ten things and you do them and then you're good right where it's like okay I've read this book then I am now a good ally where it's like no if if you're trying to check things off a list or do certain things and then it'll make you a better person like you're completely missing the point like that's not. Uh, what any of that, I mean, obviously it helps. Like I'm not telling anybody not to read books or, or educate themselves. Like absolutely you should be doing it, but it doesn't stop there. Like it is, mm. it is absolutely having those conversations, you know, that that's what's going to make you uh, someone who actively supports uh, other communities. If you have conversations with people from those um, communities. So I, I think that's a, a fantastic point that you, you bring up and uh, you know, coming down uh, using you know, Buddhism to really color that, um, the, the yeah. lens where we're, we're trying to get past all these arbitrary things that we've received from, you know, growing up and really seeing like the truth of, like you said, we're, we're just people who have that ability to hurt each other. Mm. And now also that potential to be very compassionate. Um, there was mm. one, something that like you talked about that, like I kind of, I caught it and then, um, I, I think I didn't get a, a chance to like really understand it, but uh, you were saying about like divorcing shame from something else. And I forget what it was. Mm. I don't know if you remember, but do you, do yeah. you remember what that was? I think um, shame and like accountability and like how we like, I don't know, approach healing and trying to like resolve issues and conflicts. A lot of the time when we're thinking about like what we do we're attaching that to who we are. And I think 
at some level that's true, but at some level it's not when we're thinking about like good and bad like that so strictly, then we get caught in the trap of being like, I'm only a good person if I do these specific things, right? Like you were saying. And so that means if I don't do them, I'm falling into the trap of feeling ashamed about that lack. And that means I'm a bad person. And so that's where like shame gets involved. And shame usually makes us pretty defensive, I find. And so when people try to like say, hey, this upset me, if I was just listening without judging myself first, I'd, I'd be able to say, okay, why? Rather than that immediately meaning to me, hey, you've been a bad person, let me tell you why. Like that's a lot of what we hear when we're coloring it through shame, right? And so instead of hearing somebody attack your personhood, you're hearing somebody express their hurt. And so you get to center that first. And then in accountability, a lot of the times we think like, even with like the debates about like cancel culture and things like that, like we think that just cutting somebody out is what needs to be done. And sometimes that's true when it's like an issue of abuse or things like that, that can be the safest way to deal with something. But sometimes when it's, like our day-to-day -day interactions, it's much more complicated and being accountable in our culture has meant like, we've mixed it in with like productivity. So it's like doing the right thing, doing something well, achieving is mixed in too much of that. And so when we separate that a little, I think that we get to like accountability becomes an act of love. It's, hey, I care about you so much that I'm inviting you into my hurt, the hurt that you caused, and I'm trusting you to hold it and to heal with me, right? To hold it and to grow from it with me, to be a thorn that has like pricked me and also like a little piece of aloe that soothed me right after, right? Like that's, that's a space that I'm sharing with somebody who, who we're sharing forgiveness with, right? And then through that, we build trust because they're sharing back that dedication, right? They're saying, I see that you're hurt. I see that you're sharing this with me, that you care enough to let me know how you're feeling and like invite me into this with you. I'm going to try to hold space for that and do what I can to like make this a better moment for you and to make our future moments better for us together, right? So I think like an ideal world, that would be how we viewed accountability, right? Because I'm never going to stop hurting the people I love. That's just impossible. There's not going to be a day where I master right speech, right? And like, I never upset anybody or say anything that I don't mean to or get out of control or like do a quippy remark at somebody. Like, there's always going to be a day where I'm just like rude kind of at some point. And I would love to say that there's not, but that's aspirational, not practical, right? And so I think thinking of things more practically, less aspirationally allows us to actually get closer to where we're trying to emulate right because we're not doing the behaviors that we think lead there we're seeing what's happening right now and moving out of that which i think is the connection from all that but not being ashamed like allows us to really dive into what's really there without the layers of defensiveness and like there's a lot of undoing that needs to be done when shame comes in first like if I'm upset with my partner because they have made me feel badly and maybe they said something that like made me feel ashamed of like my body or something like that, then we have so much more to deal with. 
like I have so much more uh, to unpack rather than the comment they said, right? It's not really about that. It's about the hundred times I heard something similar and those things hurt. And so if I had the space to process shame in different ways and, this, and we talked about it differently, maybe that comment would stand differently. And yes, I would still probably say, hey, don't say that to me. But I wouldn't have to do like the labor of like, dang, now I feel like a 10-year-old kid and I'm sad and I feel young, right? Because that shame is still lingering from, it just holds on. It sits in your chest for so long. And so I think being able to release shame allows us to be like truly accountable, to be truly in the moment, to see people where they're at, to not like mix in my own uh, block ways into trying to build a path to somebody. And so it just feels a little bit more expansive, but it's so hard. Like, of course, saying it sounds easy, but it's just really hard to figure out all the ways we've been taught to say no to ourselves and like which ways are actually real and which ways are just like silencing a part of ourselves. So I think silencing me teaches me that people around me should be silent about that as well, right? That's kind of how that culture begins. If I think I should not express my pain, I probably don't think you should express yours in some level. And then unpacking that frees us both. Or just giving a masterclass. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I think it's, I did a lot of meditation today. It's Sunday, so it's like my, my packed day. So you're yeah. getting like the most calm me. <laughs> this is like premium Eli. <laughs> and and all right, so one, one more thing. Uh, you were talking mm -hmm. about like the uh, accountability versus, or I guess uh, as being twisted, I guess, because of our production based society. And mm. so how, how does, um, I don't know, I guess, our capitalist or whatever society, how is that, yeah. uh, like ruining accountability, uh, instead mm. of what it actually like should be? I think because it's, and this is just like, uh, other people, I'm sure have studied this and have better answers. But I think it's just because it's so punishment based, right? Like, if you do bad at work, you lose your life. If you do a bad job, you lose directly what you need to survive is the way our system is set up. And so in setting up our society like that, the ways we connect with each other sometimes replicate that. If you do a bad job as my friend, I do not give you the love, affection, and care you need out of this friendship is a lot of times the answer, right? You hurt me, I withdraw. You hurt me, I retaliate. One of those two options, right, is a lot of times the thing. And it's so much harder to connect when you're in an individualist society that is saying that you should be able to pull yourself up. So those two things like join in tandem and create this like distance in between everybody trying to reach at each other, right? Because they're saying, okay, well, oh, there's this great tricycle article I read forever ago. Um, I don't remember what it is, but it's about like transactional forgiveness. I'm sure if you Google that in their little search bar, it'll pop up. That seems very specific, but it's like making forgiveness into a transaction and how we've like, we've turned it into, I hurt you. So you owe me something. There's a debt, right? And that comes from production and capitalism. They're always being either a profit or a debt, right? You owe me something or you're giving me something or we traded and now we're equal that's how that's set up. And so in accountability, that's not how it always works. We don't always need to be 50, 50% of the space. Sometimes that's always not like 
what's happening. Sometimes somebody needs more space to talk and release. Somebody needs less, you know, it's, it's thinking that there's a system to an apology and that there's a right way that comes from there being a way to be successful and achieve that. I think when you break that down, it means there's not a right way to apologize to you. Like I can't apologize to both of you in the same ways. And so Matt, if I hurt your feelings, and Reverend Matt, if I hurt your feelings by saying the same exact thing, right? If I know you and we're friends, I'd probably say something different to make you feel better because you're two different people with two different experiences. And so that means my apology is not for me. I'm not apologizing so I know I did it and I'm feeling better and like the good person who apologized. I'm apologizing because I feel accountable to our connection. I feel like I respect you as a person and I honor the love that we have. And so in bringing that there, that's a different type of conversation that happens. And it's a type that doesn't have a way to achieve or become successful or do it well. It just gives space to be however you are, which I think is a lot of the teachings for me. Yeah, no, absolutely. That was, yeah, incredible. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, yeah, just, you are an amazing teacher. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you too. I like listening to you both. Oh, Sorry, thank you. Ask more questions. <laughs> okay. I've been talking all day, so maybe it was a little more long-winded than I should have been. No, that, that was, was your, your forty-five-minute monologue there. <laughs> Just broken your, your up. Version of, yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, because like what what I would say is, um, and this is yeah. I don't know how related this is, but like you you said a couple things that made me think about um, the problem that people have when they start when they're in a relationship and they start thinking about uh marriage and they think like oh once we get married then we're good right and like then the, then everything's going to change then all the problems are going to go out the window then we're going to understand each other all better you know we move into a house and it's all going to be rainbows and sunshine and butterflies and and that's where you fall into this trap and then when you get married and nothing happens then you look at your partner and you're like wait why why didn't everything get better? It's, and, <laughs> and it's everything that you said where just because you love someone, you know, so deeply, it doesn't mean you stop hurting just because you understand yourself. Doesn't mean you've, you finished, you ever finished the work of like unpacking things within yourself. Like it, mm. it, 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 we're like that basically un, until we die. And like, that's, uh, you know, to kind of wrap it up, I guess, uh, one of the great things that I love about Sheen is that it doesn't ask us anything uh, more than to just be the humans that we are. And like, mm. cause that's all we can be until we die is. And so why would we try to be anything more than that? But at the same mm. time, right. Once you make it simple like that and kind of in this very small container, then you can expand it. And once you realize that, then you can be anything. And so like, yeah. that's that fantastic, I don't know, pulling, pulling from you. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Forever of just like, yeah. this. my goal is no container. That's yes. my goal. No, there container. you go. <laughs> oh, what what an amazing amazing goal! But terrible mm. circumstance when you have leftovers. Uh, <laughs> Very terrible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is there yeah, is there anything else that you you wanted to to talk about or? No, I feel good. Thank you so much both for having me. I've been listening. Uh, I used to before you took a break. I was like listening more regularly, but I used to listen all the time. Uh, and I just, you've got so many good podcasts. Um, I'm so happy that you both are doing this and that you're both back and doing more again. Um, like I just listened to the last one you did today, but, uh, it's so nice to be on here. It feels cool. And I told, uh, 
Reverend Ron about it, and he was excited too. Everybody's uh, very excited about you both, so it feels oh, nice to show up and <laughs> yeah. be a part of the excitement. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the only reason why our podcasts are any good is because we're able to have fantastic guests like yourself. So mm-hmm. I mean, like that's when it was just us, we it was just awful. But now it was <laughs> now we good. have something respectable. Um, Elizabeth Chu actually told me to listen to it for the first time. Who's, oh yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. 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 yeah, she she came to the Midwest Buddhist Temple when she was doing her rotations for work and stuff. And you guys were just starting. She's like, oh, hey, there's this podcast. And I listened to it. And I was like, oh, this is pretty great. <laughs> okay. So I've liked it. I'm a fan. Yeah. No, yeah. Her, her older brother and I, uh, we go way back. So we've been friends for a really long time. So, mm. I, yeah, that was really nice when she was telling me, like, oh, yeah, I'm at this uh, Buddhist church in Chicago and people seem to know who you are. And I was like, oh, that's not good. But <laughs> no, <laughs> so you can only go good. two ways. It's either really good or really bad. <laughs> There's no in between. That's how but I yeah, but yeah, also. Reverend Ron too. He's kind of like one of those um, temple uncles because mm. he, my, he, he knows the temple that my grandpa uh, was from, and so there's like mm. that connection too. So he knows people that can plaster and stuff. And so I, I was I had the opportunity to go out to the Midwest Buddhist Temple um, and guest speak there. Ooh, it's got to be a couple years. Oh, that was actually the trip that I proposed to my girlfriend at the time but anyway Ooh. so yeah but that was a lot of fun and he's a great guy great sangha had a good time so i'm i'm glad that you're you're able to to get equally or it seems like even more because i was only there for a weekend but it seems like you got a lot of it so I, yeah it's it's fantastic that we have this network of like churches that you know, it's you know, been like so nice yeah yeah and now for school it's online so i'm still in chicago but in the summer i'll be moving to the bay so it's nice to be like okay I already know a bunch of people there too. I'll just show up and do the same thing again. <laughs> Perfect. You have any classes with uh, with Landon? Uh, yes, I do. My ethics classes with Landon. He's okay. so nice. <laughs> yes, he is. He's uh, yeah. So me and him also like we go way back. And then I don't know if you know if you have anything with Blake or Sydney, but like those are also... Mm, Blake also. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there, That's there it. you go. You got a bunch of friends. See, Tiny yeah. This always happens. Yeah. <laughs> this is what I mean by like being having the language uh, people are always like wow you know like so many people it's so crazy and i was like i was basically raised this way too because everybody i talk to knows at least 50 people that i also know <laughs> so it feels so small <laughs> like we meet for the first time and i was like of course your best friend is my friend's friend <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh mm. man okay well i mean i i am I'm, I'm clearly excited that you are um, now yeah, going to IBS, and I hope you get a lot out of it. Um, at, the, at the very least, um, I think you'll make some really good friends and be able to mm. continue on, you know, having these kind of conversations. But, you know, at the most, you can learn so much. So I, I think mm. it's a great opportunity um, for you. So is there uh, anything you wanted to plug? Oh, sure. Um, y'all can check out my Instagram. It's at Eli Rin Brown. That's E-L-I-R-Y-N and then brown like the color. Uh, that's my social media on all the handles. Um, I do kind of these like free donation-based like community sits every other week. Um, and I post all about them on my Instagram, but they're all virtual. Um, and a lot of them are really fun. We've built like these tiny virtual communities where people come and it's like centered for uh, POC and LGBT care, but everybody's welcome. Um, and we just do a few meditation exercises and talk at the end. Um, and it's really fun. We have basically this conversation in a little form every other week. So if you want to join any of those, um, I also do one-on-one sessions with folks or like family sessions. 
um, it's been really cool. I work with folks like um, like eating recovery and different things like that, like mothers and daughters, or just like people trying to figure out life. Uh, we just sit and breathe together and kind of figure out how to talk about hard feelings. So if anybody wants to talk about some feelings with me, I'm here and available to be found. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Yeah. Ah, okay. Good. Uh, let's see. You can find me on YouTube. Uh, if you search the Buddhist church of Sacramento, um, and then regular Matt, uh, our Instagram is at the welcome mats pod, or you can email us at the, at welcome mats pod at gmail.com. There, I'll, I'll get it one of these days. We'll you got it. it <laughs> okay. Is that, is that it? Is that it? We're good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, okay. If you're going to do your, your last thing, I, I guess, all right, well, that's it then. Okay. 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 All right. Bye. 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 <laughs>